0: Welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter.
1: And I'm Mooney Jensen. The team at Altamar has, since our first podcast, focused on global affairs, the forces of politics around the world, trends and power structures, and the way they affect the daily lives of men and women around the world. And today we are putting on our white coats and diving into the field of health geopolitics. Yes, there is such a thing. Health diplomacy as the COVID crisis ravages health and economic structures around the world. We will especially focus on the recent World Health Organization um, meeting, and it's been in the news a lot for an entity that most of us did really not give a lot of thought to before. It has now become an important voice, of platform for political feuds and the object of much debate.
0: Muni, we're going to talk about how global responses to the COVID crisis have become a new playing field for politicians, about the effects of this tug of war on people's health and well-being and the pros and cons of the whole thing, health diplomacy. We are going to be joined by Dr. Amish Adalja a senior scholar at Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security, who has a lot to say about WHO, its shortcomings, its strengths, and so many other issues.
1: And its recent virtual summit that kind of fell under the radar. First, let's remember what this organization is. It was founded in 1948 as an independent international public health arm of the UN, acting as an advocate of healthcare, a watchdog for health risks around the globe, and the entity in charge of coordinated global health emergency responses. It has had a really good track so far in combating smallpox, polio, Ebola, malaria, and others. We just are going to go a little deeper in why it is under fire right now.
0: It's under fire, Mooney, because the two-day World Health Assembly turned into like an all-out proxy shootout between China and the United States and then basically went nowhere on any substantive issue. Almost nothing happened. The only real takeaway from the meeting was a watered down call for an investigation on how slowly the pandemic was handled by WHO with members only approving a, quote, comprehensive evaluation of its own response without singling out Beijing as the U.S. wanted and beyond calls for reform of the institution and weak promises to find the source of the virus and increase access to vaccines, the real drama really was the drama between Xi Jinping and Donald Trump.
1: Yeah, and China has been deploying enormous amounts of money and equipment around the world in an unprecedented show of health diplomacy. Beijing announced $2 billion in funding for WHO. And meanwhile, from Washington, Trump, holding his big stick, threatened to cease funding unless substantial improvements happened in 30 days. So Europe, once again, stuck in the middle, tried to hold on to the middle ground. And behind this back and forth, there is a real and dangerous politically motivated feud where smaller, poorer countries, as usual, are joled, bullied, threatened, and sweetened by both China and the U.S. with a mixed bag of promises of money, equipment, tariffs, threats, sanctions, trade restrictions, and travel bans. The developing world is the true loser of this summit and of this tug of war.
0: That's so well put, Muni. You you did that litany of things super well. Look, we've, we've said this in so many previous episodes, the largest destabilizing global force today is the retreat of the Trump administration from the global leadership of the United States in the world and walking away from international agreements or cutting or threatening to cut U.S. financial contributions to international organizations. Remember that the United States is the biggest WHO donor responsible for 15 percent of its budget amounting to 400 million dollars a year, and the real danger of Trump's, you know, defunding is, of course, the erosion of a coordinated response to a borderless crisis. Both the UN and the WHO depend on the United States for operations to contribute to mitigating health and economic effects. Of the world's most vulnerable populations
1: and you know the who is not perfect I mean, there's lots of countries that have called for reforms over time of the who has criticized its sluggish response inconclusive data the truth is that a weaker institution will be worse it will further cripple our way out of this crisis and this organization is a wide panoply of critical portfolios beyond COVID, beyond disease including food distribution malaria tuberculosis, AIDS, and child vaccination efforts. So there's no doubt the organization did not do a perfect job, but using WHO as a scapegoat for the US-China war will undoubtedly slow progress and increase risk to the most fragile. It is just wrong.
0: The threat is not only health. About health or health-related, you know, as cities around the world are opening up and summer descends on Europe and the United States, there's a real concern about second wave of infections. Imagine even larger waves of migrants coming into a vacationing Europe, collapsing economies and virus-plagued Latin America, manipulation by non-democratic African autocrats, defaults and financial stress, protests by unemployed, by the all of the unemployed everywhere in the world, and greater internal struggles i mean i'm not saying that all this is going to happen but all of this happens within the context of an organization that is trying to sort of give the best advice possible on how to contain the pandemic you know what a mess we we're living in it
1: is a mess peter but imagine this scenario without global institutions that are you know committed to containing illness and speeding up vaccines and treatments how do other developing countries figure out their own policies? How do leading countries find ways to cooperate? Nobody's cooperating, even if they don't want to. Consensus today is farther than we wish, more urgent than ever before, not only to keep people healthy, but also to preserve what's left of the world order. Now we're going to have a talk with Dr. Amesh Daja. He's a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security, a frequent TV personality. His work is focused on emerging infectious disease, pandemic preparedness, and biosecurity. Dr. Adalja is an associate editor of the journal Health Security and was a co-editor of the volume Global Catastrophic Biological Risks, a contributing author for the Handbook of Bioterrorism and Disaster Medicine. He's also an expert in biological terrorism and wrote an intel volume on bioterrorism, among other important publications. We're happy to have you with us today on Altamar. Dr. Adalja, welcome to Altamar.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So you're the expert opinion. What is your assessment of the WHO response to coronavirus? So let's jump right into this debate. What has WHO done right? And what are some of the mistakes and missteps? And can they be
2: corrected? Well, I would say that the WHO is the world's public health agency and that they are an important asset as we respond to and prepare for infectious diseases, especially in the developing world where they may be the expert that is called upon. So it's very important that we support the WHO. That being said, the WHO is an organization that has had problems. We saw this really come to the fore after the Ebola outbreak in West Africa in 2013-2014. And we know that the WHO is susceptible to political influence by its member states. When it comes to this coronavirus, one of the issues that we have had with the WHO is hesitancy to declare a public health emergency of international concern, as well as its recognition that this was a pandemic. Stating for some period of time that this was something that could be contained when most people in the field realized that as a respiratory virus that's spreading efficiently from person to person, this was not going to be something containable. There also were concerns about the treatment of China, specifically the fact that China's draconian methods, its suppression of free speech, its expulsion of journalists from the Washington Post, from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, basically went without any kind of criticism. One of the early people who warned the world about this outbreak in China, an ophthalmologist who has since died from COVID-19, was prosecuted by the Chinese government, and that's not the way you deal with the pandemic, and it would have been important for the WHO to call out these actions of China. That being said, the fact is that the United States has made its own mistakes with this outbreak, and we can't blame the WHO's failures for what the United States has, uh, has done during this outbreak, so we can't deflect blame from ourselves here, but there is an opportunity for the WHO to reform, to get better, and to be less susceptible to political influence, and also to start to include Taiwan in in its uh, World Health Assembly and in the World Health Organization. Taiwan is one of the exemplary states that have done an excellent job with curtailing this coronavirus pandemic, yet they are not a member of the WHO because of political pressure to placate China. Doctor.
1: Taking a step back institutionally, what is WHO's main specific contribution to mitigating COVID? What is its real mandate? Is it research, data collection, beyond the global discussion? Why is it so relevant?
2: The WHO is so relevant because it is a a group of technical experts that can help countries develop response plans to this coronavirus. They can help with data collection. They can help with response systems. They can help with preparing countries to be able to deal with this virus and serve a coordinating function in the globe to try and align policies to contain the virus.
0: Answering the first question, you mentioned the importance of reforming the WHO. So let me ask you two double-barrel questions, if I might. One, is is there a pro-China bias in the WHO, and specifically a pro-China bias by its present director general, as some in the U.S. have claimed? That's, I guess, the first question, and I'm going to follow that up with what specific reforms should the WHO undergo to reduce any bias, whether it's pro-China or other biases?
2: So I'm not a WHO insider, so I can't actually say whether or not there is a pro-China bias among its director general or among its its actions. I do know that any time that there is an epidemic infectious disease, there often is political pressure to not declare a public health emergency of international concern and to try and uh, placate member states who may be affected by this outbreak. And I think that's something that has always hampered the WHO's ability to be an impartial observer or an impartial participant in an outbreak response. When it comes to what what do I think they could do to reform and insulate themselves from political pressure, I think it's going to be very hard. The WHO is the United Nations agency, and the United Nations itself is susceptible to those same political pressures that the WHO is part of. But one simple thing we can do, since the WHO is – an agency that is tasked with protecting the public's health, is to allow all countries to participate, to allow Taiwan to be a member of the WHO, irrespective of their UN membership, irrespective of what China may think or if it offends China. Because for public health, there shouldn't be borders here. We really need to learn from everybody. We need to have situational awareness of every country. That's one simple thing that the WHO could do in order to enhance public health.
0: But honestly, that's chances of that happening are pretty small, given the importance, growing importance of China as a contributor to WHO.
2: Right. China does contribute information, but the question boils down to, are you for public health or are you not for public health? And if you are for public health, you want all countries to be able to participate and freely exchange ideas. And you don't want to have countries banned from the World Health Assembly, not because they did something wrong. What What has Taiwan done wrong in this response?
0: No, no, I, I don't want to argue. I'm completely with you on the substance. I'm just trying to be a realist and ask myself, is that reform really going to happen, or are there other reforms that WHO ought to be thinking of, or countries together ought to be pushing the organization to undertake?
2: There are ways, if, if the WHO became independent of funding of member states, that may be one way to to think about this happening. But And then there are big global health NGOs now that are available to donate money. So you can see groups, I could imagine groups like the Gates Foundation, putting money into the WHO to relieve the WHO of the pressure to placate member states. But I think it's going to be very hard because the WHO is, a, is ultimately going to end up being victim to politics like everything is when it comes to global diplomacy.
0: Let's move and talk a little bit about the COVID vaccine. Where do you see the vaccine race now and how is geopolitics playing in this?
2: With the, the race for the vaccine, I would say that we are making rapid progress with the coronavirus vaccine. This is a, a virus that hadn't even been characterized as of December of 2019. And now we're in phase one and phase two clinical trials all around the world. And what we're seeing likely is that you're gonna have multiple candidates progressing and whoever makes the first vaccine that's that's viable likely will vaccinate their own country first, even if that's not the best public health measure. We, we've seen that happen, for example, during 2009 H1N1 when Australia developed the first pandemic vaccine and did not export the vaccine until they had vaccinated their own country first. So that's likely to happen. So there are going to be countries that are locked out because they are in a place where the vaccine is being manufactured. And I think this is going to be just a simple fact that that's, that's going to happen.
0: Should there be a, a an investigation into the animal origins probe and, and what to do about wet markets in the future? I noticed that there was a front page article. I don't remember if it was in the Washington Post or the New York Times about wet markets in China. Where do you see the issue of, of how this, the animal origins of this virus and how it, how it jumped species in part because of the proximity between humans and animals?
2: I do think it's important to understand the ultimate origin of this coronavirus. We know that it likely jumped from bats to some intermediate animal and then to humans. We want to know what that intermediate animal is because it's likely still out there and it does pose a risk of other coronaviruses jumping from that animal into human species. So that may involve the wet market, that may involve more and more studies of different animals that people have in contact with, especially the early cases that we now know occurred at least as early back as mid-November in China. And I do think it, it is something that's an important task and an investigation that needs to be completed so that we can understand the origin of this pandemic because we're going to face more pandemics in the future. And it is really important that we understand what factors in the human-animal interface facilitate the introduction of these novel viruses into humans.
1: Let's move a little bit to politics. The Atlantic published a piece recently on the geopolitical second wave, which goes beyond the health challenges into mass migration from developing countries causing border issues, state defaults and economies literally crashing the continuing rise that this could motivate of autocrats, the end of democracy and freedom in many regions of the world. And this all was playing out with a U.S. vacuum. We are you know, kind of tired of hearing about the political consequences. We would like to have you tackle this this dilemma from a health standpoint, if you can.
2: Well, When you're talking about an infectious disease emergency or a pandemic, it's really a time that politics should be set aside as much as possible in order to contain it, because the entire world is at threat when you have a virus like this that spreads efficiently from human to human. But the fact is, we live in a political world and everything has this political overlay and diplomatic tensions can get exacerbated by pandemics. And we've seen that not just with this pandemic, but with pandemics in the past, for example, uh, when we saw stigmatization of Mexico uh, as the origin of the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, stigmatization of West Africa. And this is the time when you're going to see people take action. So for example, right now in in China, we're hearing about the Hong Kong protesters being arrested during this time. So there is people do take take advantage of pandemics to do certain political maneuvering that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And I think that's an unfortunate side effect of the the disruptive event that a pandemic is and, and how people are now worried about their survival. And all of these other types of issues, extraneous issues, end up happening kind of beneath the radar.
1: Maneuvering. Donald Trump promised to cut the funding of WHO in 30 days if there weren't any reforms. That seems like a really short deadline. What are the real implications if he just really cuts off the funding?
2: Fortunately, the WHO seems to be funded adequately for this response. It would be something that would happen in the future and it sends the wrong message. We don't want to to defund the WHO in the middle of a pandemic. I think we have to realize that the WHO is going to be our eyes and ears as a developing world starts to face this pandemic. And we want to make sure that those countries are able to control this virus. And they're going to rely heavily on WHO expertise because they don't have the equivalent of the U.S. CDC in their countries. So it is important that we support the WHO in these efforts and at the same time talk about reform. But that should be done after the pandemic period because we don't want this virus to simmer on in other parts of the world and leave us all at
0: risk in the absence of a vaccine. Doctor, we've coined a new term recently: health diplomacy. Maybe, maybe you knew of its existence, but I didn't. And you know, China is deploying enormous amounts of equipment, funds, goodwill around the world, particularly to developing countries, donating masks and other PPE, medicines, et cetera. And you know, they're accused of trying to use that to water down any investigations or calls for investigations about the virus. And what's your view of this newfound health diplomacy?
2: I do think that health diplomacy is a valid concept and it has helped open bridges and build bridges actually to other countries through the assistance during infectious disease or other health emergencies. I think it's a, it's a good thing, but again, like many things it can be exploited for for wrong, I don't think it excuses certain behaviors, uh, but it is a way to kind of circumvent all the normal diplomatic tensions and find a way to actually, help the individual citizens of countries that may be coping with a, an infectious disease outbreak that they, that they need resources desperately to help. And it is one way to, to make, that, make that bridge. But it shouldn't forgive any kind of any real transgressions that have occurred.
1: Dr. Dalja, you're a bioterrorism expert. I have to ask you the conspiracy question. You've done a lot of research on the subject. For us um, in the United States, the first time we associated the term with anything was the anthrax crisis or the anthrax emergency. There's a lot of talk that COVID is an act of terrorism. What is your view?
2: I don't believe that this is an act of terrorism. I think we have to think about every infectious disease outbreak and ask that question, could this have been intentional? Because it is is something that that does happen. We did face the anthrax outbreak in 2001, and there have been terrorist groups as well as states that have tried to develop biological weapons in the past. So we have to ask that question. But there is no evidence that this coronavirus was anything other than a natural coronavirus.
0: Do you worry about other types of coronaviruses being used as bioterrorist weapons?
2: I, I do think that coronaviruses are an agent that could be used for nefarious purposes, and it is something that we consider a select agent or something that's under special scrutiny in the United States when, when labs are working with it. Hopefully, though, when we develop a coronavirus vaccine, that vaccine will be universal in nature and will take coronaviruses off the table as both intentional and unintentional
0: threats. Dr. Amish Adalja from Johns Hopkins, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar. Thank you. When I started out in the political consulting business, guess who was my very very first client? It was WHO.
1: Oh my. You should have reformed it then.
0: We we worked for the uh, WHO's tuberculosis program, all about ringing the alarm bells of the return of tuberculosis both to the developing but also to the industrialized world. And you know, I got a really birds-eye view of everything that sort of works and doesn't work in that organization and one of the things that sort of is clear is that you know it's a profoundly scientific organization but it has to respond to countries and and the idea that a un organization that is run by individual countries wouldn't have some politics is silly and i think i think it's going to inevitably have it but the fact is that this is an organization run by dedicated scientists and doctors that are doing their best and have done really important stuff in the past in terms of helping all of us get beyond different types of of, uh, health emergencies, whether it is from from developing new vaccines or introducing new guidelines. I think you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater as much as people are frustrated by WHO or believe it's been too controlled by China, it is an organization that has repeatedly proved its worth.
1: Yeah, I think that the situation right now is you have a bunch of doctors and scientists trying to defend themselves politically. And I think we've talked about this for two years on this podcast, the fact that globalization is coming to an end, unfortunately, and we think and I think this this is the last frontier, If it's coming to an end in the health organizations, then really all of these institutions need to start looking inside and find out whether they should self-reform before they are put in the crossfire of countries that are feuding on trade or feuding on politics and then let the doctors do their jobs. But I do believe it's naive to think that they would be exempt, especially in light of this very, very global situation.
0: Well, I think that that's true, but fundamentally, we don't have to talk about countries. We really only have to talk about increasingly. It's just about the United States and China. And both of these countries need to learn to stop politicizing. And I do think, as I've heard you say many times before, that, you know, this could happen if there is, depending on the election results in the United States. I think uh, I have no belief that another president, whether Republican or Democratic, is going to be equally tough on China. But I do think they may be more constructive on global organizations like WHO.
1: Before we sign off, though, Peter, there's one thing that I keep thinking about is where is Europe? They've been leaders in the health and science and technology field for so long, and their voices are very quiet.
0: There's no doubt that Europe is a increasingly, let me let me change that. I mean, what's happening in Europe over the last couple of weeks in terms of trying to coalesce Europe's problems and take them on together economically has been really reassuring and something that has been a really positive sign. I hope, as you say, that that can now move to somewhat more assertive European foreign policy because it's so true that we just don't hear about Europe at all. And with that, We'll see you next time on Altamar. Thank you for joining us.